which we respond to and live out His Word. I would encourage you to turn with me to Esther chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Esther chapter 8. It's the inspired, inerrant Word of God. It was intended for us to live by. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions." On one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves and their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened, and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor, and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we come to your word. We rejoice in it. It is our desire to not only be encouraged, and there is so much encouragement in this chapter, but, Father, to be challenged to live as we ought. I pray that you would anoint me and enable me to faithfully preach your word and help us to be hearers and doers of it, people who rejoice in your word, are gladly foot soldiers in your cause. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, there are two pictures in this book that sort of act as uh, uh, a uh, pointing forward to a description of the future victory of Christ's kingdom that um, is in the New Testament era. And the, oh, the Bible speaks of this as being a foreshadowing. We all know what a shadow is. If uh, the sun is behind me, when I'm walking along my shadow falls in front of me, okay? That's foreshadowing. And so if I'm trying to sneak up on somebody, they're going to know, okay? They're not going to be able to uh, be snuck up on because my shadow reaches them before I reach them, and they're going to immediately know there's somebody behind that shadow. That's foreshadowing. 
And that's the way that uh, the pictures in the Old Testament were. There's two kinds of prophecies. There were straight-out prophecies that very clearly talk about the future. And then there's types. And those types are spoken of as being, being shadows of the future. Now, a shadow is not always really clear. Um, sometimes the shadow can be clear enough that you can even tell, you know, which of your family it is that's approaching you. But there's a lot of details that are left out. And the same is true of some of the pictures in the Old Testament. But there is enough there that it really is a marvelous, a marvelous picture. Carson, in his commentary, shows how the defeat of the Agagites, and that's just another name, remember, for the Amalekites and all of their allies, the defeat of the Agagites stands as a prophetic foreshadowing of the defeat of all humanism in Christ's kingdom. And it really is a neat picture once you begin to understand it. Now, the second picture, and we'll look at that picture next week, the second picture is the Feast of Purim. And it predicts, it foreshadows the future conversion of Israel and upon their conversion, the even greater blessing that's going to come uh, to the Gentiles. Chapter 8 ends with the conversion of many Gentiles to the faith, and they became Jews, it says. And you may not have thought of uh, Esther as being a missions book, but it is. It's a missions book. And uh, it uh, describes the incredible outreach that the gospel had during that uh, period of time. Now, this book is not, and I want to emphasize this, this is not describing Jewish uh, prejudice and uh, racism and... Uh, 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 you know, murderous attitudes toward the Persians as Deffenbaugh and some other commentators have tried to make it out to be. Some people have said that there was absolutely no need for them to engage in this battle and to slaughter the 75,000 Persians. And if you look in chapter 9, you'll see it's over 75,000. They say, now that the empire knows that the king is friendly to the Jews, nobody's going to dare to approach them. We're going to be seeing that's not true at all because the king's decree still stands. And yet these people portray them as being bloodthirsty, seeking revenge. This is not self-defense. And I think it's just a total misreading of the text to say that this, was, that this was murder. This is something I hope you've seen by now that was authorized by God in Ezekiel. And not only is it authorized by God, but these Jews actually show restraint. They show a gracious spirit when they are allowing Gentiles into the synagogues. They are welcoming them into the faith. And so we're going to see it's really a, a different kind of uh, a perspective than what Deffenbaugh gives. Those who were killed were killed because they attacked the Jews. And we're going to be looking then this week and next week at the attack of Amalek, and then the other great symbol of the Feast of Purim. Now, you're going to have to dredge up from your memory a little bit of what we've covered already because we only have so much time in a sermon, and that's one of the reasons for the handout there. I gave 11 reasons why you can see that the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 through 39 was fulfilled to a T in the book of Esther. A lot of people think it's, you know, still future to us. Now, there is a battle of Gog and Magog future to us, but all commentators agree that's a different battle than Ezekiel 38 and 39, okay? And um, you can look through that on your own sometime. I've given some extra points, uh, 24 connections in all. And the battle of Gog and Magog just represents the ancient hostility of the Amalekites toward the Israelites. In Exodus 17, they tried to destroy the Israelites. And from that point on, God declares perpetual warfare against the Amalekites. He wants them exterminated. God can do that. He's the potter, we're the clay, right? So we are not allowed to engage in warfare like that. But see, God specifically, by divine revelation, authorized them uh, to do that. It was the harem principle of, of, of warfare. And what happens in chapter 8 is it begins with tears, it ends with joy, and I think it prefigures the New Testament period, which begins with tears and it ends with joy as well. We sing the hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, because His coming did reverse history. It's not a repeat, you know, where everything's going to go downhill again. No, this is a total reversal of history where every, as far as the curse is found, uh, his grace is going to reverse that. And so these two pictures marvelously portray that. Now, here's where we're going to start. Just because victory was prophesied in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 does not mean that the tears at the beginning of this chapter are any less real, does it? 
They're real tears. Uh, we've seen over the past two weeks that when God prophesies something, that does not authorize us to be passive and say, okay, let's see how he does it. No, the prophecy is intended to give direction to our action, not to make us passive. It is intended to give us faith to expect great things from God and to attempt great things from God. And so it's, uh, it's not an illusion here. They're facing real danger and they don't necessarily know the immediate outcome of what's going to happen. They need to be involved in action. And so what happens is in verse 3, she bursts into tears and she is crying and petitioning the king to save Israel. She's not crying for herself. She's safe. There isn't anybody who would have dared to touch her. Mordecai is safe. Okay? She is weeping and moved for Israel. And that should be our longing as well. There are many scriptures that call upon us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for the salvation of Jerusalem. This should be something that our hearts are burdened for. And so point one is that the tears of the battle of Gog and Magog must go forward. And uh, there are outlines, if you don't uh, have them, outlines for the sermon this morning as well as that other, other paper. But verse one says, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, On that day King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told, him, uh, told how he was related to her. So here we have the strong man Haman bound, destroyed, just like the strong man Satan was bound and destroyed. His power was destroyed at the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, at Christ's right hand, the uh, uh, ascension to the right hand of the Father, he not only declares his victory over Satan, but what does he do? He gives the house of Satan to the church, doesn't he? He says, the meek shall inherit the earth. He was the prince of this world, but the prince of this world, Christ said, is being cast out. It's a progressive uh, thing there. And he's giving the house to his people. He says... Uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And what's the result of Christ receiving that? Go into all the world, make disciples of the nations. It's yours. Have at it, church, is what he's saying. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says this, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And so the serpent had his head crushed at the cross of Jesus Christ and his house has been given to the church. But that does not rule out the need for warfare, does it? Uh, it does not rule out uh, the fact that there's going to be some pain and there's going to be some suffering. Yes, Haman has been bound. Yes, he has been destroyed. Satan was crushed at the cross of Jesus Christ. His kingdom was wrested from him and we are progressively entering in and taking that kingdom from Satan. But we still have to enter the land of Canaan. And if you remember the story centuries before of Israel entering into the land of Canaan, there were plenty of people that died in those wars, weren't there? There was suffering, there was pain, and people might say, no, wait a shake, God said he gave them the land. How come they're having to take the land? Well, what God did when he gave them the land is he gave them the power and he gave them the authority to be able to go in and to possess the land. The land was theirs. It's given. Now they go in and they possess that land. And that's exactly the way it is uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. He has conquered Satan. He has bound him and we can enter in to possess the land with the same confidence and boldness uh, that the, the Jews here have. Now, secondly, the battle of Gog and Magog had to come despite the fact that the Jews were in charge. Okay? Then Satan being bound did not do away with the battle. Them being in charge does not do away with the battle. In verse 2 it says, So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So God has transferred the power from Haman to Mordecai in this third year of the month. But hey, the battle is going to be in the 12th month, right? So there's still a few months of waiting that they've got before this uh, battle. You see, when he transfers the authority to Haman and he makes the Jews to be in charge, he does not in any way do away with his decree. He cannot do away with his decree. Okay, the decree continues to go forward. Uh, the, the previous decree that anybody that wants can seek to destroy the Jews. He cannot annul that. And so there's going to be a battle 
even though he has put uh, the, the Jews in charge. And in the same way, Christ's resurrection to the right hand of God the Father gives the kingdom to the Christians. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies right now. We've been given authority over all of the power of the evil one. Um, in fact, the degree of authority that we have over Satan is absolutely outstanding. When you look at Revelation chapter, is it 2, 23 and following? I don't know. It's Revelation 2 or 3 to one of the churches. He says that Christ is seated to the right hand of the Father. He's holding his rod of iron, but he says to those who overcome, they have the right to smite the nations with that rod of iron. That's incredible, absolutely incredible. To the church, he has given through our prayers and through our actions the, the ability to make the conquest of this world uh, take place. And so uh, there's an awesome amount of transfer of authority that has happened already. In a sense, the battle was won in this third month uh, for these Jews when the transfer of power came from Haman to Mordecai. I think somebody was talking to me earlier thinking I mixed up the two names. I frequently do that. And in the same way, the battle was won in Jesus Christ, right? We are not hoping that we will get the victory. The victory has been achieved. It's been ordained. It's been purchased. Everything that is needed to do that has been, has been achieved. And so when we see persecution going on around the world, we ought not to be thinking, oh man, Satan is winning. Look at all the people being persecuted. You know why Satan is persecuting? Because he is so angry that the church has inherited all of his property and that his time is short. Let me read you a passage from Revelation 12. It says, the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. <laughs> the reason he's angry is he's, he knows he's bound, he's destroyed, there's no way he's going to win, but he's going to try to make as much problems and hassle and pain as he can as he's going down the tubes. You know, the expression, you know, I'm going down, but I'm going to take some with me. Well, that's exactly what Satan is trying to do. It's an indication that uh, he knows he is, he's toast. But that does not mean we do not go through the veil of tears. Look at verse 3. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Now her tears touched the king's heart, but you know what? That king cannot reverse his earlier decree. We've already seen that. Uh, the decree goes forward. All he can do is to make sure that the Jews have everything that they need to be able to win the battle. And he does that. I hope you can see a pattern here. Uh, uh, I do want to comment on those tears, though. These are not tears for herself, as I mentioned earlier. She's safe. Mordecai is safe. These are tears on behalf of Israel. She is moved. She is burdened for the salvation of Israel. And these are the same tears that the Apostle Paul was burdened for on behalf of uh, Israel according to the flesh. Paul said this in Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. In chapter 9, he says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's saying what I'm going to say. I, I know none of you is going to believe it, but hey, I'm not lying. This is really by the Spirit I am saying this, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He's saying that's the degree of burden that God has placed upon my heart. There are times where I wish I could go to hell so that they would not have to go to hell. He prayed for them. He was burdened for them. And what I want to ask you is, to what degree has God burdened your heart for the nation of Israel? To what degree do you pray for their salvation? It's something I think we ought to be concerned about because the Gentiles are not going to enter fully into their blessings until Israel as a nation is saved. I'm firmly convinced of that. And so we need to pray for the salvation of Israel. Now, the ones we're praying for, they're outside the church. They still have the veil on their eyes, the people that Paul was praying for. It was not the church. There are people outside the church. He's praying they'll come into the church. He's praying that that veil will be removed from them. And the principle in the New Testament is that that the salvation must be preached to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And that has never been revoked. Never been revoked. I think it's still a pattern. We need to have a high priority in evangelism and missions toward Israel. Now, outside of Christ, 
Israel does not have any special privileges. Revelation says they are Sodom. They are Egypt. In other words, they are under the curse of God. They're not under the blessing of God. And so we don't treat them as being a special people in that sense of the term. They're under judgment. But the Scripture just as clearly indicates that there is coming a time when those natural branches that have been broken off are going to be grafted back in and when Israel as a nation is going to embrace the Lord. And these two pictures, battle with Gog and Magog, as well as Purim, I think foreshadow that. Point four says that this battle of Gog and Magog must go forward despite the king's favor toward the Jews. Verse four, and the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Now remember that this king loved Esther and uh, the biblical history tells us that he was very favorable to the Jews, but it didn't matter. He could not annul that decree. It had to go forward. Uh, and there are two reasons. First, from 70 years before, God had said that this battle was predestined. It was had to go forward. I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 38 through 39, and we'll just look at a, a couple of passages in here. Obviously, we can't uh, look at the connection between, because we've already done that, and I've given you the paper. You can study that on your own. But I want to show that this is something God said had to happen. God was going to make it happen. Ezekiel 38, verse 4. He says, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, and a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Haman has so favored his people that they're wealthy, they're well-clothed, they're well-armed. Okay, so they're going out to battle uh, against the Israelites, and it appears that they are not necessarily convinced that they are going to lose. It's worth a try. I don't think the king's going to come after these people if they annihilate the Israelites and they succeed, because after all, it is the king's decree that has authorized this. They're simply obeying the law. So there may be something in this for them. They may be able to come away with a lot of loot. And so these people are actually going after them, and uh, they're going to try to uh, destroy Israel. But in this passage, it says hey, there's a force behind what's going on here. God is going to force Gog and Magog to attack, to attempt to annihilate Israel. And just as surely as a fish is drawn out of the water by a line. That's the image that he gives there. Look at verse 16. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my, my land so that the nations may know. And by the way, that concept of the nations knowing is a theme that comes all the way through here. I, I pointed out in the, in the paper there. But God wants missions to happen. He wants the Gentiles to know about him. Take a look at verse 23. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, the point that I'm making here is that even though everything has turned against Haman, everything has turned for the Israelites, the battle still has to go on because God has destined it to be so. Look at 39, verse 2. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. And God gives his reasons why he has to do this. It's because Israel was in a backslidden condition. And they needed to have these pressures to draw them out of their sinful condition and into a closer walk uh, with the Lord. If you take a look at uh, Ezekiel 39, 23 through 39, uh, you'll see the, um, the prediction of this and the reason that's given. And by the way, Zechariah 14 does much the same thing. The, the pressures that God is going to... Uh, well, that's, that's in the future. Zechariah 14, but he's going to bring enormous pressures upon the, the people. Just like in this picture, this foreshadowing, he brings enormous pressures to draw them to himself. That is looking forward to a time in history when Israel is going to come under enormous pressure. In fact, to me, it looks like it could be a description of nuclear warfare. You'll have to look at Zechariah 14. Maybe I'll even read a passage for you later on if I have a little bit of time. But let's read this section here and see the pressures that he's going to bring in 510 B.C. Okay. Verse 23. The Gentiles shall know 
that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hollowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer." And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Now, it's a long passage, but it gives a little bit of background to what is happening. This is something, a battle that had to go forward. God had prophesied it. It had its purpose, and it did have its designed effect. Now, back to Esther. The battle of Gog and Magog also had to go forward because the king's decree, verses 5 through 8. And said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the tears are because the king himself cannot revoke the decree that he has given. The battle lines are drawn and they are going to happen no matter what Israel might try to do to avoid it. And let me tell you something. The battle lines are drawn for Christians, and you are going to face those battle lines whether you want to or not. Satan will make sure of it. God will make sure of it. We cannot avoid the battle. The only choice that we have is to win the battle through the victory of the Jesus Christ that he's accomplished or lose. Those are the only two choices. You know, we cannot avoid the battle. We can choose to win, but we can't avoid the battle. Anyway, those are the tears. But this chapter moves on, point number two, from tears to joy, just as the New Testament moves from tears to joy. And I think if they actually knew the prophecy of Ezekiel, Mordecai as a prophet, he, he no doubt did know about it, that some of their confidence and some of their joy could have been reflected in understanding then the scriptures themselves. Over and over, Ezekiel promises complete victory for the Jews. Now looking again, we're flipping back and forth at Ezekiel 38 through um, 39. There are many promises that they would have been able to bank on. Ezekiel 38, verse 3, for example, say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, those are incredibly encouraging words. God is saying he's against them, but he's for the Israelites. And hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, that's the kind of encouragement that Ezekiel is trying to give to these people. And he says, I'm going to even make the creation itself give a sign that I am on your behalf. And you can see that down in verse 19. It says, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall be fall to the ground. And he ta talks about calling the sword against uh, one another. One of the things I forgot to put in your paper, I brought it up in a sermon before, but... Uh, Seberg's research on earthquakes going back, um, you know, millennia, and it's a very sparse information that we have from the ancient historians, but he has evidence that there was massive earth earthquakes in the Persian Empire. So I think it's probably a good thing that Nehemiah did not build those walls earlier. There's probably all of these tremors going on. Those, maybe those walls wouldn't have even withstood. 
But anyway, God moves even creation to give the Jews a sign of their success. In verse 21, he'll, he'll cause the Gentiles to side with Israel and to fight against their own fellow countrymen. He says, I will call for a sword against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And of course, in chapter 9 of Esther, you see exactly that happening. Okay, back to Esther. Let me quickly read through verses 9 through 14 where the king grants permission for the Jews to defend themselves. <clears throat> Beginning at verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and to protect their lives. And I, I point out, should point out that that idea of protecting themselves comes up over and over again. Again, it's not revenge. They do need to protect themselves. To destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. Now, there's different interpretations, actually different translations of that. And uh, here's the NIV's translation. To destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children. In other words, it's not authorizing the killing of the women and the children. It's authorizing them to annihilate those who want to kill them, their women, and their children. And actually, the translation could go uh, either, either way on that. <clears throat> uh, they point out that there's no evidence that the wife of Haman was killed or that the wives of the ten sons were killed or any other women or children were killed. It just talks about men being killed here. So that may be a possibility. I still tend to favor, in terms of the Hebrew, I think the New King James translation is a little bit better. Either way you go, God authorized in the days of Saul the slaughter of everybody, man, woman, child, even the beasts, right? Because they had been judged in God's courts. This was harem warfare. This was not the ordinary warfare that Israel was allowed to engage in. But either way, whichever interpretation you take, verse 12 goes on to say, on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves and their enemies. Couriers who rode on royal horses went out and hastened and pressed on by the king's command and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. And so they were given hope by prophecy, by providence, by the king's authorization, and then finally, in verses 15 through 17, they have hope because they know God controls the future. Now, we're skipping a ton of material here, but I'm wanting you to have the broad, the broad picture, the broad overview. Uh, verses 15 through 17. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Okay, battle isn't for several months yet. And yet the people are moved from tears to joy. That's what eschatology can produce. That's what God's promises can produce. That's what belief in God's providence can produce. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of Christians who are facing attack and persecution and they're going through troubles, financial losses. And unbelievers look on and say, they're just amazed. How come you have peace? How come you have confidence? How come you have joy in the face of everything you've been going through? Well, God's grace can produce that within us. Anyway, going on, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor, and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Again, the actual battle is not until the next chapter, but they can enter by faith into the confidence that they're going to overcome the world. And we too can rejoice in the confidence that God's promises are going to be fulfilled. There's going to be victory. Jesus has won that already in his ascension. The Spirit is progressively applying it, and one day it's going to be 100% fulfilled and will be ushered into eternity. I do want to look at some further lessons quickly from this chapter. I want to 
look at both personal and prophetic lessons. And the first personal lesson is it is right to defend yourself. Some people are pacifists and they think it's never right to defend yourself against others. And it's not right to have weapons because weapons are designed to defend yourself, right? We're supposed to be pacifists. But uh, what would have happened to these Jews if they had not already been armed? They would have been in deep Dutch, you know, real trouble. And uh, God indicates all throughout the Old and the New Testaments is perfectly appropriate. You're never allowed to raise the sword against the government, uh, the civil government, unless another civil government, another magistrate has authorized you to do so in terms of war or a lower magistrate throwing off the tyranny of a, a higher magistrate. But having weapons, no problem. The scripture says that's uh, something that we should uh, be a part of. Look at verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2. The Jews gathered together in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay their hands on those who sought their harm. Verse 5. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword. I mean, they had the swords there. And Jesus himself was not a pacifist. Jesus commanded his disciples when he was leaving them. He says, when you don't have weapons, I've already taught you the lesson. You, don't, you can trust me to provide for you. But don't presume. If you've got a weapon, take it. And he says, actually, let me read it. He who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Luke 22, verse 36. That's how seriously Christ took self-defense. We need to be able to protect our children now the and our wives. The balance in, in, in the Reformed tradition, John Calvin and Knox and all of these others, is that we can use weapons to defend ourselves against common enemies, but the only time you can use it against the uh, civil government is if another magistrate, either a lower magistrate or some other magistrate, has authorized you to do that. For example, in that context, Israel. Uh, if Israel called the Jews to arms and said, look, we're going to be annihilated by the Persians, let's uh, fight to the death and trust God to save us, yes, of course it would be legitimate to ra raise up arms at that time rather than to be annihilated. And uh, there are times where, where in Israel's history in the judges, between the judges, there was anarchy. Scripture says you don't resist tyranny on your own. That's anarchy. Revolution is never appropriate according to the scripture. And the American war for independence was not a revolution in the technical sense of the term. It was a war of lawful magistrates against the tyranny of another magistrate. So anyway, I went way off the, the track here, but it's not inappropriate to ask the government's help, right? That's the point that I was trying to make and didn't do very good at it. It's a minister of God for righteousness. Sometimes the government, you know, we treat it as being so negative, such a nuisance, that we think uh, that we should not, uh, uh, you know, we'd rather not have any government. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, all those doing the king's work, helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. So they're defending themselves, but they're also getting assistance from the government. Perfectly appropriate to ask for help. The apostle Paul asked for help from the government. And I think there is a tendency in some circles to be so negative on the gov uh, civil government that, um, you know, we just, we don't want to have anything to do with it. It is called a blessing by God in the scripture. Even the Roman government. Think what would happen if you had no government. Contracts could not be enforced. <coughs> highways wouldn't be safe if, if there even were highways. You know, there, there would it'd be a total social disintegration like happened when there were no judges in Israel. Marauders and, and bandits and murderers got away with murder. I mean, it would be a terrible situation. And so it is a blessing. It's perfectly appropriate to ask even a pagan government for help. Another personal application we've already mentioned is that we should pray for pagan Israel, or what Paul calls Israel according to the flesh, to be saved. Here's what the Westminster Larger Catechism, number 191, says. What do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? Answer, in the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. And so it calls upon the church. It's our duty to be praying for the calling of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles. And that brings up the first prophetic lesson, the historical salvation of the Jews in this passage foreshadows the future salvation of the, of the Jews. This is in our future. 
and I've put it into two, two columns here. There's actually two types of prophecy. The, the top type is the type or shadow that we were talking about. It's not always as clear. And then the bottom one, these are very straightforward propositional truth. You know, you can understand it fairly well. Now, over in this column is what's happening in Esther. It's in 510 B.C., and here's some examples of very clear, direct prophecy that's describing what was going to happen in 510 B.C. Here's some prophecies that are describing what's going to happen yet in our future, and what I'm trying to point out is this is foreshadowing that. Okay, this is foreshadowing what's happening in the future. And who knows, we may still, we may be alive, you know, when God converts Israel and brings those incredible blessings to the Gentiles in the future. Let me give you an example of a prophet who foretold uh, what was going to happen in Esther's day, and that's Zechariah 8. That's in this section over here. In fact, why don't you turn there with me? Um, we've already dealt with Ezekiel, but let's take a quick look at Zechariah that predicts what was happening in 510 B.C. Now, he does talk about the battle itself in another place, but I just want to focus on two things here, the salvation of Israel and the salvation of many, many Gentiles in Esther's day. And we're not going to have time to go over everything in this passage, but because Gentry applies this to the future, and I agree with Gentry on most, most things. I think uh, he's wrong on this. I just want to go through uh, the timing pretty quickly. Last verses of chapter 7 uh, give an explanation, like in verse 14, of why God gave the exile. Okay, so that is something that's in the B.C. region rather the, than the A.D. Chapter 8 uh, which is prophesied in 518 B.C. It's eight years before the Go Battle of Gog and Magog. In uh, verse 2, God is giving to them, you know, people who think, well, God doesn't care. We're in exile. It's going to be hopeless. And he says, no, we care. God cares very, very much. In uh, verse 3, if you look in es Ezra, you'll find that Jerusalem was very sparsely populated. It was a real problem for them initially. This is a promise that he's going to make that city full to overflowing with people. In verse 4, he's... Uh, well, actually, that's verse 4. Verse 2 is the temple that he's going to be indwelling. Temple is going to be built in another three years. Foundation's been laid, but not the temple yet. And let's see, what are some other things that we see down here. Uh, verses 9 and 10 are describing things that happen before the temple foundation was laid. So it's just a few years before. Verse 11 contrasts that, says, but now, we're not talking something that's 2,500 years later. He says, but now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days. And he goes on to talk about how he's going to be prospering them. Prospering them when? Prospering them in their own period of time amongst the nations. And then in verse 14, he again talks about something that was happening before, and then he contrasts it in verse 15. So again, in these days, and then he talks about the blessing that he's going to be bringing. Verse 19 talks about four fasts that had been started in the exile, and, and in another passage, Zechariah talks about those same four fasts and says, you've got to quit doing those. It's got to be transferred to feasts. He says that here it's going to be turned into feasting. Why? Because God has changed the situation. What's the situation that's changed? He says, I'm going to save Israel and I'm going to be saving many Gentiles. And we're going to read that in a little bit. But again, the context is clearly talking about something in the 6th century uh, B.C. So with that as a background, uh, let's just uh, let's take a look at uh, Israel being saved from destruction. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And so he's saying, whatever danger that they are needing to be saved from, this is universal, it's going to be all throughout the empire. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Look down there at verse 13. It shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Who's he talking to? It's the current generation. They're the ones not to, to be fearful. Why? They're going to be a blessing 
uh, to the nations. And so you can see it's very parallel to what's going on in Ezekiel and Esther. The second result of the battle of Gog and Magog is the blessing brought to the Gentiles. And my paper shows that with regard to Ezekiel. Let's just look at a couple of verses in Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 8, verses 20 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples... And strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is an incredible extension of the gospel during the period of time of Darius. Absolutely amazing. In fact, the proportion there, ten Gentiles to every Jew seems to be what is being hinted at. Let me give you one last one, Zechariah 2, verses 11 through 12. In the, the context here is telling them, leave Babylon, uh, verses 6 and following. He's telling the people, come out of Babylon, come back to Israel. But immediately after talking about that, in um, verses 11 through 12, he says, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The land became Jews. He meant many. I mean, there was a ton of people. This was probably the most pervasive outreach of the gospel of any period prior to the cross. Unbelievable, the extension of the gospel. And so it serves as a fantastic foreshadowing of what is going to happen as the gospel extends in the future. Now, shadows are never as great as the, the thing they're pointing to, right? And so uh, there are many other passages that say what's going to happen in the future is going to make the shadow, the picture, the darkness back there look like nothing. But it still was something that ought to really encourage our hearts. Now, if you want to know the future in a nutshell of what God has for us, let me just give it to you. Scripture prophesies from the time of Christ's crucifixion and on that the Jews are going to be a minority for quite a period of time. Just a remnant of the Jews is continually going to be saved. The majority of them are going to be hardened. But he says there's going to be more and more Gentiles over time becoming saved. And at some point in history, God is going to bring a major threat against the land of Israel, according to the flesh, apostate Israel, in other words, and somehow God is going to make that threat backfire on the very people who are going to be attacking Israel. In fact, it indicates that the, the pagan nation... Why don't, you, why don't you just turn there with me to Zechariah 14. The two passages, 14 and Isaiah 19, there's a bunch of others, but th those are really uh, pretty neat. But look at Zechariah 14 and, let's see here, verse 12. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass on that day that a great panic from the Lord will be upon them, etc. But you know that dissolving right while they're standing up there. And it's not the end of history because it talks about history going on after that. Isaiah 19 indicates that as a result of this judgment, there's going to be such a defilement of the land, it's going to take the Lord's healing the land for them to come out. But anyway, what's going to happen is there's going to be a ton of Arabs, it looks like, around Israel in Egypt and Assyria, it mentions, who are going to be uh, destroyed. But Egypt and Assyria will become Christianized. The Jews will through evangelism or through whatever means, are going to be extending the kingdom so much that it's going to be almost like resurrection from the dead. It's going to be incredible blessings that are going to be heaped upon, uh, upon the Gentiles um, uh, throughout time. And by the way, on the controversy of whether the church is Israel, uh, it can be said God has always only had one people. He's only had one temple. He's only had uh, one bride, one vine, one olive tree, and Israel is called the olive tree in Romans chapter 11, and it was only the unbelieving Jews who were broken off, right? They were cast off, and it's only believing Gentiles who are grafted in, but when they're grafted in, what are they grafted into? The olive tree. They're grafted into Israel, so we are the true Israel, right? The church. Now, we're unnatural branches, Paul says. We're not the natural, but we still are the Israel. And Esther here, why don't you turn to Esther? 
Esther here is describing a time when Gentiles become a part of the true faith and they are treated as Jews, true blue Jews, okay? Esther chapter 8 and verse 17, the very last phrase, it says, Then many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Lord had fallen upon them. The point is, Jewishness is not ethnic primarily. It's primarily a religious thing. It is the church. And anybody who believes and embraces the religion of God is engrafted into that church. Now, that does not do away with the fact that God still says that this apostate Jewry who don't deserve the name Jew. In fact, if you look in Revelation chapter 2, verse 3 and Revelation 3, verse 3, it both says, yeah, these people claim to be Jews, but they are not. Why? Because they've apostatized from Israel. They're the natural branches who are broken off, but there's coming a time, Paul says, when they will be grafted back into the olive tree. And we need to pray for that. We need to ask the Lord to hasten the day in which uh, the a nation of Israel will be saved and even greater blessings will come upon the Gentiles. Now, you can read in Isaiah 19 where he speaks about Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, all of them being God's people. So Israel is not used, it's used in the sense of an ethnic Israel because they're all in the church. He's not saying the church plus saved Egyptians and saved Assyrians. No, that would be a tautology. He's saying all three are in the church, but Israel certainly will be saved. Now, there's other prophetic... Um, uh, lessons we'll look at next week and we'll probably end the series next week but let this war with Gog and Magog be an encouragement to you that even with all of the trials and the tribulations that the church may face that uh, it cannot be extinguished Jesus promised I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it amen, amen? Uh, Israel will be saved. The Gentiles will be converted. The church is moving on victoriously, and there is nothing that Satan can do but make us miserable in the process. You know, he can do that, but he cannot stop the church's triumphant onslaught. And so I hope you're encouraged with that. Let's close. Father God, we thank you for your word. And there's been a ton of material that I gave today. I pray, though, Father, that uh, your people would be able to sort it through, be encouraged by it, and that their whole worldview would be shaped by the irresistible victory, Father, that you have ordained through Jesus Christ. Uh, we are encouraged, Father, by the promises you have given. You've given your word to rouse up our faith, and I pray that we would have faith to attempt great things for you. We love you, Father, and uh, we continue to worship as we respond through this song. In Jesus' name, amen.